Um, the hard part is this. Money is often very misunderstood. There's a very famous quote that people like to say that money is the root of all evil. Okay, Now, that is not actually in the Bible. The, the clarity of that is this. The love of money is the root of all evil. So somebody who has money is rich, wealthy, doesn't mean that they're evil. But somebody who loves money, who may not even have a lot, they could be very evil because that is their entire reason for being. They, could care, they, they couldn't care less about a, a relationship, a friendship, uh, 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 even caring for just those around them that they don't even know personally. All they desire is money, right? So the love of money is the root of all evil. But understand this. The church should be the safest place to have a conversation about money. That's what should happen in the church. It should be a very comfortable place to talk about money. We as the church have not gotten it perfect. There have been plenty of churches that have done uh, bad stuff, ministries that have done negative things. There have been people that have done things just because of money, and it's not, it's not what Scripture teaches us. The Bible teaches us, actually, to be no respecter of persons. Okay, In the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 34 through 35. And I'm going to ask someone to read that. One of the reasons why I do that is because uh, when you read the Bible, you're reading it for yourself. You're reading it that I'm not making this up, that it's there. As Christians, this is what we read. This is what we're supposed to follow. And so in the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 34 through 35, and if someone can read that. So, Acts 10, 34 through 35 says this. I'm reading from the ESV. So it says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Uh, in what Alex read, the version Alex read, it said no favoritism. In 35, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So the, when this scripture is teaching us, if someone comes in and sits in the back row and they're dressed in, I don't know, Gucci and uh, I don't know, what are the brands? I don't even, Louis Vuitton. <laughs> like, you know, they're, they're all in these luxury high-end brands and we see them walk in and, and you know, they, they pull up in, a, in a, a Maybach or a Ferrari. They get out of their car. They come sit in the back row. And then a homeless person comes and sits in the back row. Now, Scripture teaches us that we should show no favoritism. That's what scripture teaches us. That's the reason is because that's how God views it. God does not view it as like, oh, this person has money. Treat them better. That's not what scripture teaches us. Peter comes to the realization and revelation, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. God does not care how rich we are. That's why we can talk about money comfortably in a church setting where we can talk about it in a way that Scripture teaches us how to view it. The world will teach you how to view it. The world will teach you, you know, treat the wealthy better. They'll tip you better if you're in the service industry, right? Like, that's the whole thinking of it. But in church, we show no partiality because God shows no partiality. Meaning, it's like this, don't view an individual who has a lot of money as different than a person who
who has no money. That's what you and I, our standard of conviction, our walk should look like. That we don't preference. Now, the hard truth is this. Do we deal with homeless here in Los Angeles? Yes. Is it difficult sometimes? Yes. <laughs> so the reality is this, that we are not saying, you know, go, uh, you know, hug the homeless guys, you know, that are going crazy yelling, like, here, just, you just need a hug, bro. You know, like, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is don't treat them in a way where we're saying just because they have more money, they have more access to God. That's not true. Not in any way. So there's clarity of scripture here as we move forward. Yet we've seen many issues surrounding money in the church, including favoritism. We have seen it. So understand while you may have heard and you may have even seen, Scripture teaches us that money is not the dictator of the church. Money is not the dictator of the church. Okay? Not in any way. If you have $100 in your account, or if you're overdrawn in your account, or if you have $1.7 million in your account, and you invest, and your ROI is 10% better than the S&P 500, church is a place that equalizes us. If you know the S&P 500 and getting an ROI higher than 10%, that's a big deal. So, <laughs> so what I'm saying is this, when you walk in through these doors, when someone else walks in through these doors, and we sit in this setting, when we go to a, a small group and we sit in this room together, we are not supposed to look at each other with dollar signs. That's what scripture teaches us. Okay? Now, outside of these doors, money can and does define a lot of society. A lot. Inside the house of God, scripture teaches us the greatest will be called the least, and the least will be called the greatest. Mark 10.31 says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. That's what Mark 10.31 teaches us, right? So we're going to go in a little bit deeper. Um, I got a story that I'm going to read to you. It's a good illustration on uh, the, the perspective and the, the issues surrounding money, you know, because it, it is a big deal. But what I'm hoping that you walk away with today is a clarity of how we should view money. Not necessarily what you're supposed to do with it. You know, this is not, we're not going to talk about that in depth today. But we're going to talk about how we should view money, which in turn would help us understand what kind of goal we should set. So I'm going to read you a little illustration. Uh, I, as I understand it, this is a true story. <laughs> so Leighton Farrell was the minister of Highland Park Church in Dallas for many years. Okay. He tells a story of a man in the church who once made a covenant with a former pastor to tithe 10% of their income every year. So a covenant is a promise. Generally speaking, a covenant is a promise between two or more parties to perform certain actions. Okay? So this guy, just like re reviewing it real fast, this guy is part of this church. He goes to the pastor, who's the pastor at the time, and says, you know, uh, I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to give to the church 10% of my entire income. The whole year, 10% of it is going to go to the church. So he makes this promise. And so what we call that tithing. 
Tithing is a practice of giving 10, of giving 10% of your income. So as the story unfolds further, it says that they were both young and neither of them had much money. But things changed. The man tithed $1,000 the year he earned $10,000. A few years later, he tithed $10,000 because he earned $100,000. A couple of years later, he tithed $100,000 because he earned $1 million. But the year he earned $6 million, he just could not bring himself to write out that check for $600,000 to the church. It was just too difficult, too hard. It was easy, right? And then it, it, that's a lot of money. So he called the pastor that he had met with and, and promised. And that pastor had long since moved away to a different city, a different church, but he asked to speak to him. So he flew out, you know, goes to his, the, the pastor's little town, little office, and says, I, I need to talk to you. So he walks into the pastor's office, and he sits down with the pastor, and he starts begging to be let out of the covenant. He says, please, let me out of this promise I made. This tithing business, it has to stop. It was fine when my tithe was $1,000, but I just cannot afford to give $600,000. You've got to do something, reverend. That's a pastor, right? That's another name for a pastor. So the pastor stands up and walks over closer to him and then kneels on the floor. And he starts praying pretty silently. You know, his lips are moving, his eyes are closed, he's praying. And eventually the man asks him, what are you doing? What are you, what are you praying about? Are you, are you praying that God would let me out of this covenant? The pastor opens his eyes and says, of course not. You promised God, not me. I'm praying for God to reduce your income back to the level where it was easier for you. This is a great illustration of the idea of what God gives us, what we promise, what we do, and then what we don't do, right? This is the reality of we can walk very easily into a church and make a promise, Lord, I'm going to give you $100 a year. That's easy, right? We can do that. We can get that done. But this illustration here is this idea that when we make a promise to God, it's not to any man to release us from it. It's really a promise to God. I like this quote. It's pretty humorous. It says, every time you lend money to a friend, you damage their memory. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> that, you know, you lend money to a friend. You lent me money? I don't remember that. When was this? What year? What day? How much? There's another one. Uh, he, I like this, this guy. He actually very uh, a sobering and clear uh, view of this is W. Graham Scroge, right? He says this. There are two ways in which a Christian may view his money. How much of my money shall I use for God? Or how much of God's money shall I use for myself? So I want to take us into this scripture. Because these are great illustrations, but what does the Bible teach us when it comes to money? Okay, so I want to take us into this, this account, this, this situation that Jesus himself is in. And it's, it's uh, famously known as the rich young ruler. 
Okay, so this is a, a text in the scripture in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. And we're going to go through kind of scripture by scripture. But in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, 17 says this. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So, we already know this. There's this guy. He runs up to Jesus, and he calls him by by this title, Good Teacher. Okay? So there's almost a reverence he gives right away. But he also is asking a question that most people don't ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Most people don't really think about uh, death or the afterlife or what happens after I'm gone. What we do know is this. When it comes to wealth, we take nothing with us. That's, that's the reality of it. But there's this, this guy here. He goes to, this, uh, to Jesus and he says to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we can uh, draw from that a couple things. One, he knew about death and he was concerned about what happens after death. But he also knew that Jesus was the person to talk to about it, right? If you're going to talk about afterlife, let me go talk to this guy, Jesus. In verse 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So this part has been kind of confused. And in looking, I just want to present a clear picture of why Jesus responded this way. Jesus, Jesus stopped him and asked a question. The man said, good teacher, right? Which is the most popular view of an external perspective. Meaning, most people will look at Scripture, the Bible, the church, Christianity, the practice of religion, the, the uh, uh, observance of uh, Jesus and his stories, parables, teachings, and they'll say, he was a good teacher, right? That's what the world will say. Most people don't hate Jesus. They don't like Christians, <laughs> right? So it's, it's like they look at Jesus. They, he's a good teacher. So this is a secular view that this man comes to Jesus with, and he says, good teacher. But Jesus stops him and asks him a question. Why do you call me good? And then he answers the question for him. He says, no one is good except God alone. So the answer is like this. He's saying to the man, understand who you're talking to. You call me good, but you know that the only one that is good is God. So if you're talking to me and calling me good, you must be talking to God. So understand the conversation that you're asking me right now that you're wanting to have. So he was setting him up, right, for this response. Reality is this. You know, the way of the world is to view t Jesus as a good teacher. Some can even quote Jesus, right? I, I was watching an interview with uh, some actor, and he starts quoting, Jesus said, and I was like, Jesus said nothing, bro. You haven't been in church in years. Like, this guy is quoting, and he's like uh, quoting like Buddha, and he's like, I think Jesus said this too. And it's like, no, he didn't. Like, what in the world, right? But what I'm saying is that the way of the world is like, they want to view teacher, uh, Jesus as a good teacher, but consider that Jesus stopped him and made him recognize that you're not talking to a good teacher. You're talking to God. And so the questioning was, was needed. The perspective had to be adjusted. So 
the man wanted confirmation that he would make it to heaven. Most of us want that. Confirmation that we would make it to heaven. He was asking the right person, but he had the wrong posture. What do I need to do? What is the checklist, right? That what, what are the things I got to do just to make it? Uh, I would joke with uh, some friends, you know, like, like, bro, I don't think you're making it. Like, you know, like, just, like yeah, no, nah, you were close, but no, nah, not today, bro. If it happens today, you ain't making it. And they're like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to squeeze it. I'm just going to barely, the door's closed, I'm going to squeeze it. And it's like, it, this is the reality of it. But sometimes we just want to do what needs to be done to make it to heaven. But I love what C.S. Lewis teaches us in a book he wrote called Mere Christianity. And this book is great. It's, it's uh, written from the perspective of just questioning, questioning Christianity. Who is God? Who is he in my life? What is his role? And so he writes this book, and in this, this portion of this book, he says this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. That is fact. That's fact. If, if uh, Alex starts saying he's Jesus and you know, he's like, follow me, you know, drink my blood, eat my flesh. It would be weird. We would be like, no, check that guy in, man. <laughs> it's time, man. <laughs> right? So C.S. Lewis says, a man who was merely a man said the sort of things Je- that said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He further says he would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. This is what C.S. Lewis is saying about Jesus. He's saying either Jesus is, he's a crazy psycho lunatic, who, a man who sits on the corner of a street and tells everybody he's an egg, and everybody's supposed to say like, oh yeah, you're an egg, right? That's, that's what C.S. Lewis is making the, the contrast, the comparison to. And he says, but you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, and you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus was not just a good teacher. That's, that's what the, the world will allow. He, you know, he was, his, his morals, his ethics, his teachings were good. They were helpful for society. But Jesus did not call himself a good teacher. He called himself God. This man was speaking to God himself, not just a good teacher. So we go further into verse 19. We're in verse 19 of the book of Mark, chapter 10. It says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, this is what the the man that's talking to Jesus responds to Jesus with. He says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now think of the response. It's like this. Jesus is telling him, hey, don't, this is, this is the first part. You know the commandments. Don't do these things. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't, don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, I've done all these things since I was a kid. That's easy, right? He's like, I'm a good person. That's basically his response. I've kept all of these things from my youth. I'm good to go. 
the man was not a bad man. By every account of it, for him to just respond with that was that he was not somebody that was a horrible person. He wasn't. He says, I've kept all these from my youth. Most of us have broken these commandments times 10. <laughs> right? Like you read those, you're like, oh, dang, that, yeah. <laughs> like, well, I didn't murder. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, like it's like we compare. Like I, didn't, I wasn't that bad. This guy says, I haven't done any of those. I haven't done any. I've followed every single one of those since I was a kid. But probably by some of our current standards in society, he would have been a beacon of good, a role model to many, right? I think of, um, I pray for Keanu Reeves, man, that that guy gets saved because you read about his story and you're like, dude, that's a good dude, right? You read about it. He gives his money. I read this one um, story of how one of the guys on the set of a movie he was filming was going to lose his house because he was behind on so many payments. Things had happened. His wife had gotten sick. They fell behind. And so Keanu Reeves hears the story, and he gives him a bonus of like $25,000 and says, here, like catch up on all your payments. You know, like, and I'm like, whoa, like it's Keanu Reeves, right? It's like, good dude. And I think of it, and I think like this guy is like that type of person. That's a good dude. But in Scripture, we read further. Verse 21, it says this. And Jesus, looking at him, this is an important note. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Like that's, That's just not something to brush over. Jesus looks at this guy, and he loves him. And he doesn't, he doesn't hate him. He, he, he looks at him like, man. And, it's, and it's, the scripture goes further and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. In verse 22, it says, disheartened by the saying." He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So we read about the rich young ruler, and we also realize two things. One, Jesus will let you walk away. That goes against a lot of theology, right? You know, we we sing some songs like, Jesus will come after us. He'll break the door down. You know, he'll fight for us. And it's like, well, you read this, and Jesus let this guy walk away. He didn't go after him. He he presented to him a thought and says, these are the things that you need to work on. These are the things that need to change. Come follow me. And then the guy turns around and walks away, and he doesn't go after him. John Gill's exposition of the Bible says this, finding that he must part with two things his heart was set upon. His idol of self-righteousness and his mammon of unrighteousness. The bladder of his pride was pricked, and his vanity and self-conceit were exposed, and he was called upon to part with his substance, all which were sadly mortifying and exceedingly disagreeable to him. See, it's, it's this presentation of whatever you think that you did to accomplish goodness and all the, the accolades and achievements, it's not enough. That was an idol of self-righteousness. The, the person that battles with self-righteousness always views others by comparison. Meaning, we take a look and we say, I'm not as bad as them. Or we always find ourselves in comparison in our Christian walk. At least I'm not. Right? 
That's a person that battles with self-righteousness. And Jesus calls it out, and he, he's saying to him, and, he, and it, again, it's in love. It says he loved him. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. In verse 23, it says this, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, but let me, let me go back a little bit. It says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Let me, let me explain this. They were amazed because they thought that the wealthy people were the ones going to heaven for sure. <laughs> that, so think about it. Like the, the view of the world and the people around, all of us think like, well, if they have it all together, they're going to heaven. But Jesus tells them, no, like it's, it's hard. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then uh, verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? In verse 27, it says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This is where we begin to kind of understand like the, the crux of it, the, the main part of what we're trying to understand here is that Jesus teaches us in this, in this account that there's this good man who has a good amount of money and comes to Jesus and says, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, sell everything you have. And, and this isn't for all of us. See, Again, back to the story of the, uh, that I, the illustration I gave you at the beginning where the guy that was giving a 1000 right, it was easy for him. For some of us, it's easy. If Jesus saw us and said, sell everything you have, come follow me, you're like, I'll make like 50 bucks. All right, let's go. <laughs> That's all I got, right? We have nothing. So it's almost like easy. But Jesus was saying to him, you have much. Sell everything and follow me. But the main point was this. He said to follow me. See, money is so intimately related to the possessor that we cannot give money without giving ourselves. We, whenever we give something, right? Think about this. Your favorite, whatever, whatever it is, your hobby, your, your, you love this one thing. And think of the ultimate thing. Like, let's say you collect baseballs, right? And you're like, man, I love baseballs. I have a, a Babe Ruth signed baseball. You know, I have all these, these amazing things. And then one day, this, this one that you've been saving up for is available. You have the money. But it's a huge chunk of your life savings. If you love it, you're like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm going to buy this. And it's going to be mine. But you're giving something. This is the reality of, of what Jesus is saying. Like, this, these things, they can possess us. These things that we have, the money, the cars, the house, it can possess us. And Jesus is saying, don't let that possess you. Let that stuff be secondary. Pay attention to me. Follow after me. If we are making goals for ourselves, don't forget that, when, especially when it comes to money, God is not asking for your money. He's asking for your worship. 
Because the greatest and most devastating part of what Jesus asked the rich, rich young ruler was to come and follow me. He was saying, don't give any more attention to all those things that you've spent your life on. Come and pay more attention to me than anything else. The rich young ruler could not give up his wealth. It mattered too much to him. We are so blessed here in America. We can sometimes forget that our daily lives are saturated in wealth. That some parts of the world have never even seen or experienced what we walk every day in. Uh, I went to, uh, I was with a guy who does, he pours concrete. That's, his, that's what he does for work. That's his business. And so we walked into this facility, and he was like, whoa, man. And I'm like, what? And he's like, this is, this is all expensive. He's like, man, they must have put at least 250000 just into this lobby. And I was like, what? I was like, on the floor? <laughs> he's like, yeah, that's all this here. This is expensive. And I'm tripping out. I'm like, oh, man, that's crazy. But if you think about it, there are people in the world who have never walked on a $250,000 floor. They've never even seen it. They don't know what it looks like. There's people who've never uh, felt air conditioning. The World Bank, there's worldbank.org. You can go look this up yourself. 648 million people in the world. I think there are more now, right? About 8% of the global population live in extreme poverty, which means they subsist, which means maintain or support oneself on less than $2.15 per day. $2.15 per day. We can't even buy lunch for that. And that's what they live on. That's housing, food, clothing. Uh, you know, that's their entertainment. That's, that's for the family. $2.15 per day. For this reason, the World Bank also reports global poverty numbers at two higher poverty lines to help monitor poverty as countries grow and living standards improve. These two thresholds, typical of poverty lines among lower middle-income countries, LMICs as they are known, and upper middle-income countries, UMICs, are currently at $3.65 and $6.85, meaning that there are poverty lines that in some countries, poverty is considered, uh, you're living, or extreme poverty is that you're living at $6.85 per day. You make more than that, and some of you make more than that in five minutes, some of you make more than that, like that um, daily amount in half an hour, sometimes triple, you know, quadruple. What I'm saying, I'm trying to paint this picture that we walk in wealth and blessing. And, and this, the reality of what Jesus was teaching us is that wealth and blessing should not be the thing that we are possessed by, that we walk and saying, Lord, I want to know you. This stuff is cool. This stuff is great, but I'm not possessed by it. I, I want to be close to you. If you ask me, get rid of all these things because it's become the thing you worship and, and sell it and come worship and just follow me. That's the challenge for us today as Christians. What is that thing? If it is real and there and you know it and the Holy Spirit speaks to you, that's the thing we have to get rid of. And I'm not saying you have to go destroy it. I'm saying that your heart has to be adjusted. If we're setting these goals, 
like the lighthouse, our perspective, our direction, our worldview, our focus has to shift into a place that becomes aligned with what the Word of God teaches us. Um, I'm going to close here and then ask Pastor Mancha to come up, but I want to read to you uh, this, this testimony, really, of this church uh, here in Eagle Rock, California. Not too far, right? It's uh, north of the L.A., north of downtown L.A., near Pasadena. Um, when we read of the church, and we, you can find a bunch of bad articles about the, the church and ministries and, and people in ministry of things that they've done wrong with money. You can find a bunch of that stuff online. But it's funny because it's not as easy to find the things that are done that are good. Uh, if you drive around just Los Angeles, look at the names of the hospitals. They were not from private uh, businesses. They were from nonprofit organizations that started as churches. You know, a lot of the good things in America that were built for education, developed to, to develop us as a nation, were birthed out of a church that wanted to help and impact and build community. But I read this, this story of the Christian Assembly Church in Eagle Rock, California. The church, for one year, did a fundraiser, and they raised $50,000. For one year, they did a fundraiser, raised $50,000. The members were not told of how it would be used initially. The, the leadership said, we have a great idea. We want to do a fundraiser. We want you to trust us. <laughs> And so the church was like, all right. So they raised $50,000. During the Christmas season, the church announced that what they were going to do was take that $50,000 and pay off medical debt for low-income families in the area. And so they, they had people, uh, basically there's, there was a, a business that facilitated this the church didn't know the names of the bills that were being paid. All they did was say to this company, we want to pay $50,000 in medical debt. So whoever has debt in these low-income areas, we want you to take this money and pay off their debt. So people throughout that area literally got a letter in the mail saying, you are debt-free. You no longer owe this. The church said, isn't it appropriate that people would receive something that they didn't ask for, that they didn't earn, that they didn't, you know, call out for, but they just received the goodness from God. This is the idea of what the gospel is, right? The generosity of our Lord and Savior who says, I know you didn't ask for this. I know you, you didn't know you needed it. I know you were going to try to figure it out. I know that you were just pursuing and trying to get it done. But I have some good news for you. I've taken care of it, right? The sin that we are filled with, the debt that we owe, and sin is the, the, the cost of sin is, is hell. The cost of sin is death. It's punishment. It's brokenness. It's chaos. But God says, I'm going to pay that for you. And this is the reality of when we look at our life and we present this idea of making a goal that we stand in front of Jesus and that he doesn't look at us and say, you know, you got to go do this one thing before. But that he says, hey, welcome. You know, sit down. Let's follow. Let's go. Let's go. That's, that's the gospel. That's the presentation that Jesus has for us. That there is a debt that has been paid.